podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. Now, today I want to talk to you about the words you live by. We all have them. Little phrases that we've heard over the years that we've kind of internalized in our kind of like mental frame template by which we make decisions. I mean, have you ever had someone give you really good advice and that's just really stuck in your brain? My mentor, he said to me that in 10 years from now, you'll be no different than you are now, depending on three things. Number one, the choices you make. Number two, the people you know. And number three, the books you read. And I've really lived by that in many different ways. And I've had many other lessons like that given to me over the years. What are yours? I, I, I remember hearing one that I thought was quite remarkable. It's by our, our America's 33rd president, President Harry S. Truman. He said, it is amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. I found that to be very true over the years, and I've had others teach me different lessons, but they have also given me the right words to live by. I mean, what words do you live by? We all have these proverbs, sayings, phrases that we're guided by, and it's taught by parents, pastors, teachers, politicians, authors, celebrities, musicians, athletes, or from books or movies. They could be cultural things that we've learned. I mean, there are words that so seep into our soul that they impact us so much that we begin to actually guide our lives by them. Or they are words that really infuriate me and cause me to want to change, to prove them wrong, meaning that their phrase says something that I just can't take because I know that it's not right. I mean, have you ever had that? Words are powerful things. And today we're coming to some words that inspire us, but who equally infuriate others. It's the sermon of Stephen, his last words before being martyred. It's the words that he died by, words that inspired others to live by. And I th think about this. What words are we living by today? Are they worth dying for? Well, I want us to look today to see what these words are and how we can live by them. And to let you know that today's episode is brought to you in part by Derek Eastman Insurance Agency of Sugar Grove, Illinois. So let's get into our text today. We are in Acts chapter 7, verse 1 through 8-3. And I know that this is a long text, but it's really one episode that needs to be examined together. So let's jump right into our text. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would, would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, 
And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led him out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us, and for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
and they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, and the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked him to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus! Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Okay, today's passage spans a whopping 63 verses, but it's really hard to break down into smaller units. And the episode contains a sermon, a revolt, an execution, and a glimpse of hope. I, of course, won't have time to break this down completely, or we could be here all day. But I want to paint with broad strokes today as we wade through Stephen's amazing words, which were punctuated with his life's blood. And I want to pick up where we last left off. We saw that Stephen had been disputing with the Hellenists from his former synagogue, and the dispute grew so much that Stephen was brought before the Jewish ruling council and brought up on charges of blasphemy. He had claimed that Jesus had said 
that he would destroy the temple and would change the customs of Moses that had been passed down from generation to generation. And the high priest, the presiding ruler of this impromptu trial, asks him, are these things so? Stephen then gives his defense. He proceeds to tell the story of Jewish history, beginning with Abraham, who is, of course, the father of the Jewish nation. In fact, he is the father of all monotheistic religions, especially the big three, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And as we get into this, we're going to see that contained in Stephen's word is a promise, a promise and foreshadowing of a deliverer who would be fully realized in the coming of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Now, have you ever seen a movie where you are introduced to a character and some music that is carried throughout the rest of the movie every time that character comes in again and again and again? I mean, all movies do this when you have the, the hero comes in and he has a music with him and then throughout the movie in one shape or another, that same kind of theme is brought in again and again. It happens all the time. And here we are introduced to something similar, except it's an idea. A promise that God had given to one man, and this promise is not a new promise, but an, but an extension of an ancient promise, one that had begun in the Garden of Eden, and who would find its fulfillment or its crescendo, its climax, in the coming of Jesus. But for right now, it's sufficient to say that we can see that the gospel is contained in God's promises. In Western culture, promises don't mean to our culture m much today. But to God, promises are huge. When God makes a promise, there is something that he's guaranteed to be kept. His very character is at stake. Stephen begins his message with God's promise to Abraham and how God had called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He called him to leave the land of his fathers and go to a land that God himself would show him. I want to take a look at this promise for a moment. It's actually found in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He expands on this promise in Genesis 15 and then again in Genesis 17. There are a couple of things that I want us to see about this promise. First of all, the promise involved a people. God would raise up a people from Abraham. In fact, we are told that God would make him into a great nation. And in Genesis 17, we see that actually many nations will come from Abraham's descendants. And many in the Middle East trace their lineage back to him. In fact, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all trace Abraham back as their spiritual father. But Judaism doesn't just have him as a spiritual father. Rather, as a physical ancestor, as does much of Islam. Christianity looks at it more from a position of being spiritually grafted into his family. And God tells him that through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He would work through a people. In fact, this blessing would be one through whom one of Abraham's descendants, which was incredible because Abraham at that time, if you remember, had no child and was getting up in years, as was his wife, Sarah. 
God also told Abraham that his descendants would also one day be enslaved for 400 years and that they would one day be released and would come back to this land to worship God. God then gave Abraham Isaac as the child of promise and then gave circumcision as a sign of this covenant or legal agreement with him. The visible sign that Abraham and his descendants were set apart, chosen by God to be recipients and beneficiaries of a promise. Now, it's important because this promise continued on with Isaac and then was passed on to his son, Jacob, and then from Jacob to his 12 sons. It was during Jacob's time that a famine came upon the land and his people were in danger of starving to death. But God had already paved the way by having Joseph sent into Egypt as a slave, who eventually became prime minister of Egypt, who was given the task of saving food and preparing to feed Egypt and the surrounding peoples with food to survive the famine. And the Israelites lived in Egypt and multiplied from 75 to a sum of 600,000 over a 400-year period. The Israelites were put into slavery, and once God had provided a redeemer with Moses, being raised up to deliver the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and then lead them into the promised land. Miraculously, God had them freed from slavery and then sustained them in the desert. God was working his promise to bring the Israelites into the promised land. And there's another part of this promise, and that is the land. It's the promise of a place. So we have a people and we have a place that God would have a land that or, or that Abraham would have a land that God would show him. It was part of this promise, which is why Stephen gives a great deal of detail about it. But Stephen reminds them and us that Abraham didn't see the fulfillment of that promise in his life, which is there's a tremendous lesson on faith there because we are an instantaneous society. We don't know how to wait very well. But that's for another time. It would be one, a promise that his descendants would see after they were freed from slavery in Egypt. Of course, it's the promised land, a place where they could find freedom, peace and wholeness. And God raised up Moses and gave the law to him to show the Israelites how they were to live as God's people living in God's place. But the Israelites largely rejected it. And, and, and there is always a group that looks and sounds like God's people, but who are not. However, out of that group, God always preserves a remnant who believes. And Stephen actually talks about this in verses 35 through 43, where God raised up Moses and gave the law to him, but the people rebelled. Moses, of course, was a prophet who spoke to God face to face, and, and God would raise up another prophet like him. And this is not talking about Muhammad, by the way, as many Muslims think. It's talking about Jesus. And the scripture does clearly show that the prophet is Jesus, who was also known as the second Moses. He transitions from Moses to Joshua and then skips to David in his desire to construct a temple for God, another sacred place, which was the embodiment of God's presence with his people, but was superseded when Jesus came, God in flesh. The temple was constructed by Solomon, and that then became the center of Jewish identity, along with Abraham, Moses, and the law. It would now be Moses' law and temple. But they had focused on the outward and not the inward, kept the letter of the law, but neglected the spirit of it. Stephen takes great care to show that despite all that God had promised and what he revealed of himself, the Israelites missed the point. We all often 
miss the point. They missed the point of what God was trying to show them. They were blessed to be a blessing to the nations, but they instead became insular, looking inward and legalistic, focusing on the letter of the law and looking at that as a means to self-righteousness before God and spiritual pride. What they didn't understand or recognize was that their privileged position as God's people or why they were given a place was so that they might be a testimony to the nations about who God is. God then sent them a prophet and then another prophet and then another prophet to bring them back. Of course, they became proud and continually missed the point as to what God was trying to do. And like Israel, let's get personal. We often find ourselves confronted for missing the point of what he's trying to show us. Have you ever had that? I know you have. We all have. Time and time again. I remember Tim Keller saying that when we look back over our lives 10 years ago, we go, wow, I was so foolish. And then if we were to go back then and ask ourselves the question, what were you like 10 years before that? And we would say, wow, I was so foolish. And he said, let's go back to our current time and let's actually fast forward to the future. And in 10 years from now, we will probably look back to where we are right now and say, wow, I am so foolish. His point is that we we think we know everything and we've got so many things settled. But the more that we continue on in our relationship with Jesus, the more that we learn about who God is and about ourselves. And oftentimes God takes us in this circuitous way where we we look back and we go, wow, where is God at? Where was God at? And then we we examine it and we say that we see that he was there the entire time. We just missed it and we were acting foolish. So like Israel, we often see ourselves missing the point. God had brought prophets time and time again to confront them, to remind them that their hope and their privileged position in the temple, the law and the land were not to be where their hope was. That that wasn't supposed to be the object of their hope, but God. It was to be in God alone and the freedom he would give them. Stephen brings this out in a few places. When they were brought out to Egypt, they didn't want to live this new life of freedom. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted their idols of comfort, food, and knowing what was good and bad. They were afraid. They were afraid because it seemed like God wasn't providing. I mean, they they had no nothing else really to gauge. And, And I've been there. Matter of fact, I'm there right now. As God has birthed this ministry, I'm looking back, going, "Okay, what do I do? How how is God going to support us? How are we going to get through this?" What are we supposed to do next? What do you have for us, Lord? And I look back with, I mean, I look forward with fear because it's the unknown. And I look back and there's this really kind of perverse notion of safety, even though it was Egypt. It was awful. They hated it when they were there. And yet it still offers a measure of safety because they understand what that means. They understand who they were in that. I was speaking to a friend of mine who started a ministry in India to help rescue minor girls from sex trafficking. And I asked him, what is your biggest obstacle? I mean, what's the biggest trouble that you have doing this ministry? He sighed for a moment, and then he looked at me and he said, the girls that return. He could tell I I was confused because I raised my eyebrows and I furrowed my brow a moment questioning him, wondering if what he was saying was true. And he assured me, unfortunately, that it was. He said, many of these girls don't know anything else. They're told that they 
don't matter, that their bodies are the only thing that they have to offer. Their parents don't want them. Their families don't want them. They don't have any education. They don't have any other means of support. So they should go back to what they know. And many girls do. I think the Israelites were experiencing something similar. They were afraid. They knew Egypt. For them, they wanted their idols of comfort, whatever comfort that was. They didn't want to live this new life. They did want their idols of comfort, food, and knowing what was good and bad. But to reject God always means putting up something else in its place. We can make gods out of ideals, philosophies, or say that we are the authors of our own destiny. Then we have to become our own gods when that occurs. That's what the American culture is about. Pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. You make your own destiny. Stephen reminds his audience that God doesn't care about the externals as much as he does the internals. For example, look at verse 39 through 43. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the images you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. You know, when we reject God, we have to create something to be in his place. That's, it's just the way it is. We've heard the expression, nature abhors a, ba- a vacuum, and it's true. Or maybe we think we can have God, but only simply give him the externals and not have the heart into it, as if we are pacifying him or pulling a fast one over on him. But God doesn't know that kind of heart, and in fact, there's no way that we can fool him. For him, it wasn't the beasts and the sacrifices they made, but the fact that they followed false gods. The tent of Molech, which was actually the Canaanite sun god. And as God dwelt in a tent in the tabernacle, they gave themselves over to Molech in a similar manner. They followed the star of Rephan, which may be the Egyptian name for Saturn, which meant that they were following some type of astrology to live by. And because they rejected God... God gave them over to things that weren't God's at all. It's not about the outward, but about the inward. This is what I struggle with when I look at so many different ministries. They want to put on the show. They manufacture this joy at times. Not all do. I mean, there's some genuine joy-filled, real great ministries going on out there. But there are others that are being faithful where they are. They may not have the show. They may not be so beautiful on the outside, but they are being faithful to God. And unfortunately, for many of us, we try to compare ourselves with those who are the the outward, those who have the, the greatest followings, those who seem to have it all together and present this image of perfection. But that's not what God's about. Consider the Israelites during Jeremiah's time. 
They thought that the temple was a magic sanctuary, and if they hung out there, they would be blessed. If you were to turn to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 3 through 10, we read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered! only to go on doing all these abominations? He admonishes the Israelites because they became superstitious, thinking that they could use God as a means to an end. They could find protection in the temple because it was the temple. But they failed to love him, worship him, and do the things that he required, which was to help other people. God gives them a history lesson, reminding them that he has never been able to be manipulated. He has always wanted their hearts and have them show the reality of their faith by helping others. He is so angered at them during Jeremiah's time that he decides to kick them off the land to get their attention. He brings the Babylonians and has them go into exile for 70 years. He is so ticked off that in Jeremiah 7, 16 through 20, he says this to Jeremiah. As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out in the, on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Stephen's words remind us that they missed the point. And truth be told, so do we. This is not about using God. This is not having your best life now or using God to get you good health or prosperity, or bringing you a good marriage. It's about so much more. And that may happen. Those things might occur, but they also might not. It's about being changed from the inside out, to be a light to the nations, showing by our lives and the sacrifices we make that God is God. It's not about formulas or speaking blessing into your life in order to get more stuff. It's about knowing and loving Him and putting down our arms of aggression, dishonor, and rebellion against him to become the people he wants us to be. But we can't do this on our own. We can't honor God the way God demands. We have failed. You see, the purpose of the law was to show us that it was impossible for us. The purpose of the Jewish law was to show that we are 
giant failures, and that we couldn't completely keep the law and honor God in the way that his word required, which is why he sent a Savior. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. Christ came to fulfill the law. It was all to point to him. It was to be the guardian until he came. It was why God chose one man to bless the world. It would be through his descendant, Abraham's descendant, that the entire earth would be blessed. And that descendant is Jesus. See, that's what Stephen is trying to do. Show them that it's about a specific person. And that person is Jesus. Stephen brings his entire message to a crescendo in verses 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's the climax of his message. They had missed it for years. God had laid it out in the promise to Abraham and it was carried through to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and then to King David. It had been protected, preserved, and provided for, and the the prophets testified about, but they continually missed it. They missed the point of the law, the point of being God's people, the point of the land, and the point of the temple. It was all to point to Jesus where ultimate freedom, blessing, and peace would come, of which these others were only a foretaste of. And this Jesus would come, and he would provide the world with salvation. They didn't just miss it. They went so far as to kill him. It's all about Jesus. It's not about who you want Jesus to be. It's about really who he is. See, in our culture today, we pick and choose. We pick and choose what we want, and we want to be able to do that with our faith. In many ways, it's just like going to Panera or some other restaurant. We want food. We want this on the side. We want that and not this. I want this and not that. I mean, we have all of our different little things that we want to use to make it our own. And we try to do that with God, and we try to pick and choose. But with God, you can't do that. None of us can do that. I mean, what has God been trying to show us? What has God tried to show you? Where have you missed it? He has called you to believe and then be a blessing to others, telling them about who Jesus is as we take care of the least, the lowest, and the lost, as we build relationships with others in the hope that they will come to know Jesus. Have you been trying to make yourself acceptable to God in some other way? There is no other way. Believe in Jesus, take up your cross, and follow him. Stephen gives words to live by, and they reject it, and he becomes the first martyr in church history. But here's the thing about his sacrifice. He serves as an example for us and shows us the cost of making this truth known to others. In order for others to live by this truth, we may have to show them the reality of it at the cost of our own life. Yeah, you heard me. And I say that, I say that knowing that I don't even understand the fullness of what that means. And I hope in many ways I never have to. We may have to show them the reality of it at the cost of our lives. In other words, for us to give this truth comes at a costly price. 
God gave his life, gave the life of the Son of God for you, and he asks us to give our lives to him. And it is a costly price because God calls us to die to ourselves. We are called to follow, to leave behind father, mother, brothers, sisters, lands, houses, inheritances, money, career, reputation, everything. He calls us to give our lives for him, and it's not an easy price. And this is what I've noticed is many Christians will, are willing to say this until it gets into something where they feel that they're not happy. And then they say, God wants me to be happy. And it might be that that's where God is calling you to sacrifice. It's not an easy price. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew seven thirteen through 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to life, and those who find it are few. Or Luke 9, 23, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He calls us to give up our lives and testify about him. But the world will not take so kindly to our message. While some will respond, In believing in Jesus, many will come out in defiance. And in today, especially in the West, it's not so much of defiance as it is a God of their own making. I mean, they have Jesus agree with whatever they believe is right, rather than aligning themselves what God has said is right and true. It is not an easy price. And many will come out in defiance, and that may well happen to us. We may experience defiance. Notice what happens to Stephen after he testifies about Jesus in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Arrgh! Whenever we testify about Jesus, we will have some who resist it. Some will be apathetic toward it, thinking that they can just go on and ignore it. But those who truly understand this truth cannot be apathetic toward it. They will either receive it or reject it. And more often than not, there will be defiance. As I say that, I want us all to remember that we can't let that stop us from testifying. We have to go forth with our message, even if it means our death. And I know that there are many listening now who are in places where it could mean your death. I know we have listeners in Pakistan, in Nepal, in India. I know we have listeners in different parts of Africa, South America. I know that there are some who are feeling that pressure day in and day out, a pressure that I do not know in my day-to-day -day experience, but you do. And while I may not know, God does. He knows. And he lays these out before you. We have to go out with our message, even if it means our death. We have to remember the unofficial motto of the United States Coast Guard. And I know that there are those listening to, uh, from other countries, but I want you to hear this. This is their unofficial motto. We have to go out. We don't have to come back. See, they understand that they have to go out to rescue, but they might die in doing that. God calls us to go, even if it means our death. Stephen is then stoned. 
They pick up stones and throw it at him to kill him. Stephen's words and death remind me of the words of, a 20th, of the 20th century martyr under Hitler, the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote, When Jesus bids a man, he bids him come and die. This always means spiritually die to our flesh, but it may mean dying a physical death for Jesus. I know I'm going to ask this question, and some may know, and others may not know their answer. But are you willing to die for Christ? And I know many, within the sound of my voice, you may truly experience this. And while in our culture, in the West, it might seem afar off, it could happen here, too. I want to spend a few moments looking at Stephen's final moments in verses 54 through 60. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. There are a few things that I want us to see from this passage, especially at the end of verse 58. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This man named Saul is introduced to us for the first time. Why? Well, because Luke is laying a baseline as to what is going to happen to this man. He is going to be transformed. You know, there is an expression in church history. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's why this passage quickly transitions from Stephen's death in chapter 7 to more about Saul in 8, 1 through 3. Stephen's sacrifice contains a seed, and so does ours. His sacrifice contains the seed of possibility. This passage may seem like a tragic ending, but there are two things that I want us to look at to show the seed of possibility. First of all, notice that when Stephen gazed into heaven, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is unusual because Jesus is always depicted as seated next to the right hand of God. Why is Jesus standing? I believe it's because Jesus is honoring his servant's sacrifice and welcoming him into eternity. You see, it's a picture that God will honor us and that he sees us and knows us intimately. He knows intimately what you and I are going through. But knowing that he is standing and receiving Stephen, it is an honor. Why is this an honor? We can see this idea in different cultures. And if I could use an example or illustrate it for a moment. In the movie To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch is a Caucasian lawyer who defended his African-American client 
who was unjustly accused and convicted of rape against a white woman, a crime he didn't commit, and all evidence shows that he didn't do it. However, at the end of the trial, after this man is declared guilty, even though he was innocent, and the the guilty man goes free, all of those who are African-Americans who had to sit in the gallery because they were not allowed on the floor. Watch as the courthouse clears out. Atticus is one of the last to leave, and one by one, all of the African-Americans in the gallery stand up. And the leader of the community, Reverend Sykes, says to Finch's daughter, Jean Louise, who is sitting nearby in the gallery, he says, Jean Louise, Stand up. Your father is passing. It's their way of honoring him for what he did on their behalf. It's a similar picture. Jesus is honoring and welcoming his servant's sacrifice for him. But that's not all. Saul, as I mentioned before, is introduced to us. And we must ask ourselves, why is Luke doing that? Why did he do that? Why did he include that detail? He did that to give us a glimmer of hope and show us that hope lives on. Even the most, in the most dire of circumstance, hope lives on. We need hope. You need hope. And you need to know that your sacrifice is not in vain. And it's not. I want to encourage you, wherever you are, that your sacrifice is not in vain. Your obedience is not in vain. That everything that you do, God sees and he knows. He knows every tear that you cry. He knows all of your hopes. He knows all of your dreams. He knows all of your successes and he knows all of your failures and he loves you still and his heart grieves for you and he longs for you and he loves you with an everlasting. And I use that word, not even understanding the full weight of it, everlasting love. God will honor our sacrifice by giving hope to others. They may seem resistant or even violent to the gospel, but God will cause hope to live on. Saul comes to encounter the living God on the road to Damascus. As, he in the, as he's in the very middle of persecuting Christians, God reaches out and saves him and then transforms him so that he becomes Paul, the greatest missionary in church history, author of 12 or 13 of the New Testament letters. Don't think that a person's rejection of you means that your sacrifice is in vain. Even if you die, and it may not seem like anybody is listening, God is working. That's what Abraham was about. He didn't receive the fullness of God's promise to him in his lifetime, and we won't either. We need to be content in entrusting our ourselves to God and letting him do the work. These are the words to live and die by. That's your water bottle for the week. Are you living and living by them and will you die for them? If you want to really ask, what is my water bottle for the week? It's this. Think on this question. What words are in your mind and in your heart that you're willing to die by? And if you're not, then you need to reconsider and replace those and find the words of God and hide them in your heart so that you might not die by them, 
but live by them. Remember, God loves you so much that he gave his son to die for you. Not when you were all pretty, not when everything was great in your life, but when you were in a horrible state, you were in all of your ugliness, filth, and sin. When you were his enemy, Jesus willingly laid down his life for you. Stephen died to make the name of Jesus known to others, will we? He loves us so much that he has given us new life, forgiveness, peace, purpose, and a reason for living and a reason for dying. How should we respond to that? That's the question we need to think through this week. And during this week, I hope and pray that God blesses you. I also want to thank you for listening and let you know that this episode was brought to you in part by Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you are in need of a realtor, she's it. Google her name, give her a call or text today. And that's it for today's episode. If this has helped you so that you can water your world, then hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, interact with us on our social media pages, and share this episode with other people. And I want to thank our team, Kevin O'Brien, Eliana Fleming, Rebecca Badal, and Donovan Martin. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered, everybody.